The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Rack and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is your newscast for episode 199 for the week of, what is it? That's uh, February 22nd, I think. That's true. Uh, Alex, we are so close to episode 200. It is uh, amazingly close. We, we've got, we're we've on got the brink. big plans. We got big plans for episode 200. Yeah, you know, we've been planning this for a long time. Uh, it's, been, um, it's been literally minutes that we've been working on that plan. <laughs> um, but, you know, we came up with a plan, so good stuff. This is, uh, we're, we're way more ahead on this than we are on most things. We're, we have a, more than a week before that episode needs to air. That's true. Usually we're, you know, stumbling into things as they happen. So right. I think a, a week of planning is, is pretty good for us. But it's going to be exciting. I, I think it's worth giving people a little preview to say we are going to we're going to interview each other and we're going to take some questions from the community via the Slack channel. So if you have questions about uh, the Colorado security scene, about what it's like to do a pod, the best security podcast in Colorado for the last four years, um, go out to the, the the Slack channel and and ask your questions, and we'll make sure we get them in. Yeah, I mean, other things like you know how you can stand being with Rob for you know two hundred episodes. That that's Should a valid question. Should I bring my wife in to help with that, that answer? <laughs> I th- hopefully it's been more than 200 episodes for you guys. So, yeah. but she's but, been uh, around. Yeah. She's, she's had to be interrupted by a lot of these episodes. So there's that's that. true. That's true. Um, you know, it, it is a burden on families and things like that yeah. too. So, uh, but yeah, so I think probably the, the podcast channel in our Slack workspace, um, well, I think we'll probably make some announcements in there uh, in Slack in general, but if you want to go start, asking questions that we can answer for next week's episode, feel free to go do that. All right. Um, that said, you know, that means we do have a Slack channel. Um, what is a Slack channel? It's a, it's a place where you can talk to 800 of the best Colorado security professionals there are. Um, and then uh, 900 of the not best. Is that, uh, uh, so we've, we've got a, what is it? 1700 now or 1800? I think we're over 1800 now. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, um, a lot of people in there, a lot of great conversations. I mean, so many good conversations, it's hard to keep up. Um, But yeah, lots of great people in there. If you want to be connected to uh, the Colorado security community, go hang out with uh, with people there. You can go to the website, colorado-security.com and find the link to the Slack channel. And while you're on the website, why don't you go ahead and sign up for our mailing list? That'll keep you abreast of all of our show notes that come out, which basically, if you don't want to, if you want to have all the news from the show, but none of the witty banter, just click the link and you don't have to listen to us. Yeah. Also, um, we would love it if you went to your favorite uh, podcast player or uh, podcast store, whatever that might be, iTunes, uh, Spotify, one of the other ones, and uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you get this delivered to your inbox every week. And we'd love to have a rating there as well. Uh, one of the Slack conversations on the Slack channel this week was uh, from Douglas Brush, who is uh, host of the, the second best Colorado uh, security podcast. Um, and he was mentioning that he got a negative review, which he was uh, excited about because it was it was his first negative review. So uh, we oh, don't so want negative reviews, but um, yeah, we don't we don't have anyway. any negative reviews, do we? I, I think that he's ahead of us in that one. Yeah, you know, please, I mean, please don't if, run out and give us a negative review just because of that, though. <laughs> but if you want to help us, there's a couple things you can do to help us. Number one, you could tell a friend, uh, tell a coworker, tell a lover that we that we exist and that we're worth listening to. And number two, if you want to financially support the show. Uh, we would love it. Uh, you know, we do pay for this out of our own pocket, and but we ha- we have some fantastic patrons who are who are helping with that. Um, those folks who give us a little bit of money each month to keep things moving, it's it's very motivating and it and it helps defray the cost of this whole thing. 
Yeah, I do have to say it's been wonderful having the Patreon folks. Um, we we pay less and less out of our own pocket uh, because of their support. So that that is great. Um, and speaking of Patreon, uh, last week we mentioned we had a new patron um, and we have gotten confirmation from him that we can talk about him on the air. So uh, thank you, David Nectarline uh, from Serious Computer Solutions for signing up for, um, actually, uh, this is an interesting thing too. Um, he asked if we can do yearly memberships as opposed to monthly on Patreon, uh, which we hadn't set up before. And uh, I figured out how to do that. So now if you want to do a yearly membership and only have to pay once a year as opposed to every month, uh, you can do that. So uh, thanks for to David for the support. Um, and everyone else, if you want to go sign up for a yearly me- membership, go ahead. All right. Let's jump over into the news. A big thank you to David. David, thanks for your support. We appreciate it. Jumping into the news, uh, Alex, I don't know if you're aware, but last week was really cold. Uh, it was. It was extremely cold, and it was the fifth coldest week in three decades. Um, so that should tell you how cold it actually was. Yeah, it was the coldest we've been in seven years. Uh, so between between uh, February 10th and February 17th is the, is the dates we're specifically talking about. Um, the, the average temperature during that time was 6.5 degrees. Yeah, that that's low. Um, I, I have to say it was not very fun. Uh, I tried not to go out. Um, although last Saturday, I think it was, we did go out. We actually ate outdoors in a bubble. Um, and it wasn't too bad. Was it, it wasn't a gondola though, huh? It was not a gondola. Uh, don't, don't give that away yet, Rob, yeah. but, but yeah, so, um, very cold last week. Um, luckily it, it's going to be a little bit warmer here. Um, I think we, we were happy though, that we got a little bit of snow along with that cold. We need the moisture. Um, I also, uh, in this this list, they have the five coldest weeks in the past 30 years. Uh, the coldest was back uh, December 18th to 25th in 1998. I remember that one. The average for that week was three degrees. Um, and I was living in an old house at that time. Man, it was really cold. <laughs> well, now, now you have that nice warm house that is not probably quite so drafty. That's right. Um, I did what, one more thing I was going to point out on this article, the, the coldest morning of that, of, of last week was on the 15th and the temperature was negative 16 degrees. Oh man. Uh, sounds like you want to just go outside and run around in your underwear. Well, all the time, but yes, fair, <laughs> fair point. Even more. All right. Uh, next story. Um, Rob gave it away already, but uh, this is a story talking about how old ski gondolas are finding new life as private dining rooms for restaurants. Yeah, there's a company in Fruta, Colorado called the Gondola Shop um, that refurbishes and repairs gondolas. Uh, and I think actually their, their main business before the pandemic was going out to ski resorts and and like refreshing and and cleaning up, polishing the gondolas that are being in use. Um, and, and the the owner of that business had realized, you know, these companies, when they're done with their gondolas, they don't have anything to do with them. And she had started buying them three years ago, buying these gondolas and just like keeping them on a property they have in Fruta, like not, not really having a plan for exactly what they're going to do, but thinking there's got to be a use for these things. And all of a sudden comes the uh, pandemic and she gets a call from uh, a village up near Telluride. I can't, was it the village at Mountain Town, something like that? Sounds um, right. 
who who'd asked like can you can you create some outdoor seating from your gondolas and she's like that's a great idea they, they did it the there was some social media recognition about this really cool idea that you know even in the really cold weather you can put a heater in these things people can have four to six folks eating a meal and and, and it, it looks really cool and it looks really cool on social media and the whole thing just blew up and her business has been going crazy so i think my favorite part of this article was her talking about the fact that she really had no uh, no clue of what she was going to do with these gondolas when she bought them um, just thought, hey, you know, we can get these and re repurpose them for something, maybe someday. Um, and bought, I think, you know, like sixty from a, a resort in uh, in Vermont. It was actually like a hundred from a resort in Steamboat. And just had these sitting around until uh, you know fate intervened and uh, the, the pandemic really highlighted a use for them. Yeah, it's really cool that. The article also shows that you could buy them a couple different ways. You could spend just under five thousand dollars, forty eight hundred dollars, to get one as is, which means you know right off of the right off of the the lift. Um, and they, and her quote says, "I don't recommend this. Uh, it smells like thirty years of use when you open the door." Yeah. So that that was funny to me. But uh, I guess the more common way to sell it is they they'll disassemble, clean, sandblast, fix, repaint, upholster, uh, and, and spiff up the gondola. To specification of the restaurant and that process basically takes five to six weeks and costs 15 to twenty thousand dollars per gondola um which is, it seems like i was thinking man in the middle of pandemic i don't know if these restaurants have 15 to twenty thousand dollars to spend but they also say she will rent the gondolas for about five hundred dollars a month um which kind of seems like a no-brainer considering you know hopefully yeah. this pandemic is not going to go forever yeah i mean but i think you know if, if you're thinking a little more long term too um you know ten to twenty thousand dollars I mean, it, maybe you don't have that cash right now, but it's in the long run, it's maybe not uh, not that awful if you're going to get you know a couple of them and and you know keep them uh, on your property as uh, sort of novelty uh, seating forever, right? So that that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. So next article we've got is is from the Denver Business Journal, um, where Denver has proposed a plan. Basically, the article says Denver eyes turning off natural gas and requiring all electric new buildings. Um, in order to help address climate change. Yeah, and I think that the the headline is a little bit misleading. Um, however, um, it, it is mostly true. Denver is is working on some um, building code changes that will require new construction uh, to be net zero energy. And as part of that, they require they will require, um, assuming this all goes through, um, electric. Uh, heating and uh, and water heating as as part of that. So, you know, I, I don't think that they're saying you can't have natural gas to the building, but they're saying for the building itself, most of the main systems like uh, heating and uh, and water have to be electric. So theoretically, you can still run gas to the building. And if someone wants a gas stove or something like that, you could you could still do it. But uh, but yeah, and it's, it's very interesting considering the history that uh, Denver and Colorado has with, you know, the oil and gas industry and uh, you know, being a, a center for for natural gas for a long time. Yeah, uh, I, I will clarify that this is just a plan at this point. It's a it's a plan that's going to go before some uh, some hearings this summer, uh, and then the the city council will later in the year um, address the plan and consider whether we want to adopt it. Yeah, um, I, I would guess that there will be um, some heavy lobbying from the oil and gas industry to uh, to maybe soften this a little bit. But uh, I think you know, in general, it's good to see. Uh, you know, new, more energy efficient building codes being put forward. That's good stuff. All right. Uh, next, uh, we have an announcement from Otterbox along with uh, Katana Safety. They've announced a, a product collaboration. So uh, the Otterbox uh, Universe 
um, modular case for phones now works with a, uh, a module from Katana Safety so that you can have um, essentially a, a personal safety device built into your phone case. Yeah, you know, I I did not know anything about Katana Safety before this, or if I did, I had forgotten it. Um, it looks like kind of, I'm not clear exactly what it does, but it looks like it's, it's a way for folks to easily um, notify f- people if they're in trouble in, in some way, either medical trouble, or maybe they're, you know, there's in some kind of risk of danger, violence. Um, there's, there's buttons that, that allows for an instant bypass of the lock screen on your phone, connects to a 24 seven response center um, to help with any situation at hand. I'm, I'm wondering if it's kind of like, like a life alert type of a situation. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like there's, um, you know, like a silent alarm uh, possibility built into it too. And you know, they mention you know, people in certain uh, job types that you know might need this one. I think that they said you know like an airline attendant or something. If you need, you know, need to be able to do something, uh, alert people really quickly and and not have to sit there and you know open your phone and call somebody or you know do things like that. So uh, pretty cool. So they basically are building in their smart wallet technology into the Otter case. And as I look at at the Katana website, like there's a there's a strap that can go around your wrist. So if if someone tries to take your phone from you, it'll pull that out and it'll set off the alarm. Um, they're really interesting. I I guess high high security situation that you know most of us probably aren't dealing with, but for those who need it, it's interesting and it's cool to know that Otter is uh, partnering with these guys. Yeah, I think the other cool part is that I don't know. I realized um, that OtterBox has a sort of a modular case, right? That this Katana piece, you know, I think you can swap in and out as part of the case. So. Um, you know, maybe you could have the Katana module and, and put that in when you, you know, need to have it with you. Um, you know, if you're, if you're on the job and you need that, that safety piece and, you know, maybe put something else in when, when you don't. So that's pretty cool too. All right. Jump over to our next story. Uh, and this is a, this is a story from business journal as well. Um, could Denver be the next great destination for e-sport events? And apparently the Denver local tourist leaders think that that's uh, definitely the case. Yeah, I mean, esports is a it's a giant industry already, and I think there are lots of places where they're trying to get in on, uh, you know, some of that uh, cold hard cash that's being generated by people playing video games for for money. So uh, this is the the local uh, visit Denver tourism board, you know, sort of thinking about okay, how is it that we can attract some of these events to to Denver, and you know, maybe on a recurring basis, right? So uh, thinking about. Um, one of the examples they said, it's, you know, in April, you go to Augusta for golf and we want people to think in, you know, July or whatever that you come to Denver for esports. Yeah. That's exactly the the part of this that caught my eye too. Um, I, I imagine it's gotta be that the pandemic has just been a huge accelerator for esports as a, as a way to get edu- entertainment, excuse me. And of course for profit as well, like you mentioned, uh, it's, it's interesting to see Denver do that. I, it, it always seems a little strange to me that the combination of esports and getting together in person, like, well, it's all virtual. Can we do it all virtually? Right. Um, but I'm sure people love to be around the community of folks that they're with and in person. And, you know, it's hard to drink with someone when you're across the, across the globe from them. So this is going to be a chance. Hopefully Denver can, uh, can land one of these big ones and, and you and I can go to it and be like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, there is some uh, spectator capacity as part of this too, right? Um, I think we've seen through the pandemic where you're having, uh, basketball and football and other games, uh, soccer games being played without any fans. And, you know, it's just not the same experience without a, a whole bunch of people cheering during uh, whatever's going on. So, uh, you know, I can, even though I do also understand where it's like, well, why don't we just play these games remotely? You know, I do understand that I, there is a different level when you're in an arena with uh, hundreds or thousands of people cheering uh, while you're doing this stuff. Yeah. 
Well, good stuff. Let's pivot over to our security news for the week. Uh, first is an article from one of our favorite companies in town, Red Canary. Um, they have uh, raised a C round and, and really good valuation for this company. Yeah, so they raised another eighty million or eighty-one million dollars in their Series C. Um, looks like it's red led by many of the same uh, uh, partners that they have used before, Summit Partners and a couple others. And this takes them to a little over one hundred and twenty-five million that they have raised so far. Um, and they're going to use this to just continue to to build out the service and uh, you know grow the demand for for their MDR services. Yeah, they, the, the headline says that they're going to triple down on security operations, which is great because it's better than doubling down. Right. Although I do have to wonder why they're not quadrupling down because it, it feels like, you know, it's probably time for that. Yeah, you know, I, they might have had to raise more than $81 billion if they were going to uh, quadruple down. That's probably the only yeah, difference. That's, that's probably but, what happened there, yeah. Yeah, so um, congratulations to Red Canary. I'm sure this is going to bring in some, uh, you know, great new people and uh, products and keep them moving forward. Yeah, good stuff for those guys. Congratulations, guys. All right. Next, we have a, a blog from Ping uh, talking about their Project COVID Freedom, um, which is going to make vaccination verification easy. So, so I, I need to I need to do one quick correction for you there. This is actually a press release. Uh, a, this is a, a new product that got released uh, yeah. this, this last week, and it's the announcement of that, that new product. Um, as, as you mentioned, it's called COVID... Uh, COVID Freedom or Project COVID Freedom. And basically the idea is, uh, you know, combining the the ability to do personal identity on your device where you're, uh, you have your phone that controls, you know, claims you want to make about yourself with the vaccination. So when you get vaccinated, uh, you can, you, the person who gives you the vaccine will give you a claim on your, on your phone that you can show to other people, whether it's an airline, an employer, a, I don't know, whoever else wants to know you're vaccinated and you can choose who sees it, uh, but they can do so in a way that, that gives a high level of credibility. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Um, you know, I think seeing people now that have gone through the process of getting a shot you know, or both shots, you know, when you're done, you know, they hand you essentially a piece of paper that says, you know, you, you've done this. Um, and you, you probably don't want to a carry that around with you. So you can, you know, hand a piece of paper to somebody saying that you've gotten vaccinated. Um, and of course it probably has more information on that vaccination record than you necessarily want to share. So I think having this electronically, uh, in a secure way with, uh, with minimal personal data sharing is pretty cool too. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, moving over to our next story, there is a a blog post from Hush Blackwell in the Bite Back Law um, blog. David Strauss, Stouse, excuse me, are one of our friends. Um, it's it's a blog post talking about a new tool they created, and I'm actually looking at the tool right now. It's their their 2021 state privacy law tracker, and, and basically they ha- they got a map of the U.S. And, and they show you where all of the new privacy laws are, and gives you a really easy way to to click on the state you're interested in and, and learn more about what those laws look like. Yeah, um, it you know not anything super fancy, but a pretty cool tool so that you can keep track of this stuff. Uh, state privacy laws are constantly changing. But, you know, some states right now have multiple laws that are going through the process to, you know, see which one is going to come out on top. So you can you know track that kind of stuff. See, uh, you know, get directly to the the uh, the language of a particular bill that's going through and, and lots of other stuff like that. So pretty neat. Yeah, you know, it just occurred to me. It's been so long since we've had David on here. We probably should. Uh... We should probably try and get him back on again. That's probably a good idea. Um, 
you know, we'll, we'll have to see if he's actually a listener of the podcast still. And if he reaches out, otherwise yeah. we can talk to him. Uh, Cause we, we need to play hard to get apparently good. That's I like right. that. I like that. All right. Good stuff. Next, moving on to a uh, logarithm blog post talking about threat detection in the public cloud and uh, cloud security solutions related to that. So uh, this blog is really talking about some of the, the threats and challenges that go along with the public cloud. Um, you know, whether it's uh, making sure that you have proper identity access management, um, compliance, um, you know, misconfigurations, what we see a lot with, uh, with cloud configurations in public cloud, um, and talking about how some of the ways that, uh, that logarithm can help in that uh, monitoring of public cloud. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, no surprise from a security company. They're, they're looking to talk about how they help you solve this problem. Uh, but this, is, I think, is the first I've seen from logarithm that's uh, really touting their new acquisition. This gets into their, their misty um, XDR acquisition and um, showing how that's going to further help logarithm solve these types of problems. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's talking also about, um, you know, some of the, the newer and, and more novel ways that you can monitor these things in, in the public cloud. I think, you know, both AWS and uh, Azure both have sort of, you know, a virtual tap feature now where you can tap different areas of the network and run it through other tools. Um, and, you know, that's great, but uh, really having a tool that can capture that data and, and look for analytics and uh, things that are, are going on in those areas uh, is important. And so good to know uh, Logarithm has that with their, their MISNET purchase. All right, moving on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of national news or even global news that we totally ignore on this show because we are a Colorado <laughs> security podcast. But occasionally, you know, there's a, a, a bigger story that we want to talk about. And it's nice when one of our local security companies talks about it so we can we can use that as an excuse. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, Optiv has a blog this week around, um, around the attempted... Uh, malicious, well, how do you say it? Like uh, chain, you know, the, and it's an attacker who got into the, the Florida water system and tried to put too much lie in the water and, and poison right. all those, all those folks. Uh, here's an article just talking about the reality of that and, and what folks can do to prevent it. Yeah. And um, I think, I think we're still not sure exactly what the intent was. Um, you know, obviously they got in and changed some settings. We don't know if they were actually trying to poison someone or if they were or people um, or if they were just seeing if they could change these settings or or anything like that, um, but yes, um, it, the attack was caught by a you know a human uh, monitor, someone that was sitting there trying to monitor the water quality for their job, and so uh, glad that that happened. But you know it does bring up uh, concerns that have been around for a long time around uh, control systems and control system security. Uh, I think as long as there have been control systems, the security has been lacking and bad. Um, and, you know, again, this sort of highlights it in the article, they talk about, uh, you know, this is, this is maybe a wake up call for people in the critical, critical infrastructure space. I don't know if I believe it's going to be a wake up call. Um, but it is yet again, highlighting some of the problems that are in that industry. Yeah. You and I have both worked in that space and it is, uh, it's hard to get folks to take it too seriously and say that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, they do offer some, uh, some suggestions here on things that you can do around training and visibility. Um, also segmentation, which are all great things. Um, in this particular case, uh, maybe the training, but not necessarily the, the other ones would have uh, would have helped. You know, it, it was a unsecured uh, remote access connection that allowed the attacker to get in. And you know, if you're going to do that, then you're probably going to get uh, owned six ways to Sunday. You know, every week. Yeah. So. 
All right, um, moving on. That is the end for news. Uh, our next element, though, is the Slack message of the week. And as everyone who listens knows, we have a, a big thank you to Andre Gaeta, who has been sponsoring this for us. Andre, each week, allows us to acknowledge one person from the community who who says something in the Slack community that we that we want to call out. And basically, that person gets to, to pick one free item from the Colorado Equal Security Store. Yeah. Um, thanks again to Andre. And uh, I think we've got a, a great winner this week. Uh, Michael Steffen is our winner, and uh, he won because he put a, a comment in around the the Perseverance rover that just landed on Mars, and noting the fact that his name is actually etched on that rover. So apparently, when this was being built, uh, you could submit to have your name put on the rover. Um, I think is sort of part of a fundraising effort, um, and he did, and his name is on that rover that is now on Mars. Yeah, and he he put he posted a picture of his, I don't know what you call that, like certificate of being yeah. on the rover, uh, and uh, and and I think with the rest of us were pretty jealous that we didn't know that that was an option that one could have done. Yeah, uh, I think that is pretty cool. When when aliens someday find that rover on Mars, they'll go, "Who's this Michael Steffen guy?" I guess that's a good and, point. Now you and I are safe from the alien retribution for that whole thing. That's right. Uh, yeah. we, we are still anonymous to those aliens, so. All right. Well, so Michael, you'll get to pick one item from the store and uh, look forward to seeing your new Colorado Equal Security swag. Awesome. Congrats, Michael. All right. Uh, with that, let's move over to events. Uh, we've got some great events coming up on the calendar. The first one uh, is a fun event, and this is on the 23rd. It's the Colorado Equal Security Poker Night. Jason Jakes has been uh, organizing this for us. And if you're interested in getting involved, there is a poker channel on the Slack workspace. Um, I think that they, uh, th this event is full currently, but I believe that they are taking spots for the waiting list uh, to get people added if uh, if someone doesn't show. Yeah, I'd say, you know, if you want to get involved, even though this particular one's full, there's going to be another one next month. This is your time to to get on the list and make sure you, you get on there next time. Yep. Uh, next on the 24th, ISE Squared Pikes Peak is doing their February meeting. On the 25th, ASIS is doing their Young Professional Happy Hour with Colin Darty. Uh, I think we skipped one on the 24th, right? ISSA okay. Denver um, I did. on the 24th is doing um, the CCPA to CPRA, California's privacy law update. Uh, we've been doing this 199 episodes, Rob, and I still can't get it right. Yeah, and then, that might be the first time that particular thing's happened. That's pretty good. It, it, possible. Um, and then the, the final event, ISSA Colorado Springs is uh, starting their Security Plus review on the 6th of March. This is a great thing that uh, ISSA Colorado Springs has been doing for a long time. It's a uh, extremely inexpensive way to have a prep class for the Security Plus, and they also do uh, a similar class um, at a different time for CISSP. So if you're interested in getting Security Plus, you should check that out. Yeah, I have sent a number of my employees to do this over the years, back when they had to drive down to the Springs. It was so valuable. It was worth the drive. Um, if you can do this thing virtually online, man, it's it's well worth your time. If, if you're looking to get into security, get that uh, that educational background, definitely recommend you do it. It is a multi-week, I think it's three or four week long um, exercise. We're only t showing the first one on here because we don't need to show the same, you know, week two, week three, week four, but get signed up before it's too late. Like we said, it's going to be on the 6th of March. Good times. 
All right. Uh, let's move over to jobs. Rob, any ping identity jobs this week? Absolutely. I got a couple of jobs that are that are worth calling out. Number one, I am hiring a security program manager that's kind of a, a right-hand person for me, helping run and communicate the program internally and externally. I'm also looking to hire product security engineers. I have a couple of positions for those. If you have an application security background and you're interested in um, excuse me, an application development background, and you're interested in security, this is the right fit for you. You can reach out to me on Slack and I'll make sure to answer any questions you have. Awesome. Moogsoft is looking for a security AppSec engineer. Uh, DB Shanker is hiring an IT governance specialist in security. Direct Defense is looking for a security analyst night shift. So if you're someone looking to get into security, that might be a good thing. Or if you just have a hard time sleeping and you want to turn that into cold, hard, hard dollars, this is an opportunity for you. Probably better than driving an Uber. <laughs> there you go. Insurity is hiring an application security analyst. Insurity, uh, Joshua Foltz is our friend over there who's the CISO and uh, a good opportunity to get onto his team. Uh, Square Trade is looking for a security engineer. The Hershevec Group is hiring an incident response specialist. Uh, Coal Fire is looking for a senior consultant for application security penetration testing. You know, I put these jobs together this week and I didn't even notice the trend that we've got an awful lot of AppSec. Yeah, good job. Um, Greenberg, is it Tra Traurig? Traurig? I, think it, I feel like they don't- Good enough. Out. Yeah. Well, Greenberg is hiring a data <laughs> privacy and cybersecurity temporary sub summer student law clerk. So this That's is a really cool. cool opportunity for someone in law school who wants to get uh, security experience. Um, yeah, honestly, Greenberg is, is well-respected and I think it'd be a great uh, opportunity for anyone who wants to get into that field. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm glad to see we're uh, having more of these. You know, we had the one a couple of weeks ago with the uh, attorney general's office yep. uh, doing a, a similar type internship. Yeah. Well, good stuff. That is it for the news. We do have a feature interview this week. Once again, thanks to Jason Jakes for doing an interview for us. Uh, he sat down with a couple of our friends. Um, We've, we've got Rich Schleip, who is the CTO and former CISO for the Secretary of State's office, you know, who's responsible for election security here in Colorado. And also, at the same in the same interview, we've got uh, Craig Busing, who is the current CISO. So the two of them talking about how we the technology and security around our election system. Nice. I'm looking forward to that. It should be good. All right. Well, Alex, have a, have a good one. We'll, we'll get back together again next week with tough questions from our audience on episode 200. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. All right. See you. Hello, this is Jeremy Cooper Levitt, Managing Director of Assurance at Charles Schwab. This is Colorado Equals Security for Colorado security professionals by Colorado security professionals. Hello, Colorado Equals Security. This is Jason Jakes. I had the rare opportunity to interview two key people here in the state, Rich Sleip and Craig Beezing of the Secretary of State's office. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Rich, Craig, welcome to uh, the podcast, or I should say, welcome back for you, Rich. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting us back. Yeah, thanks for having us, Chase. So, Rich, you were episode 68. Uh, that's That's been quite a while ago, a couple of years, right? Yeah, it's been a little bit. I remember going down a meeting where we could actually see people in person and meeting Rob and doing the podcast. It was, a it was fun. Good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with you. What's changed for you since then? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, just recently moved houses. Uh, nice. So that, that's been exciting. Um, I've moved from being the chief information security officer to being the CTO. Right. And we have a new and improved CISO, Craig. So that's exciting. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So the community uh, definitely knows you because you've been on the podcast. You're, you're on the Colorado Equal Security Slack channel. Um, I think most of the community also knows you as well, Craig. Um, you have, this is your first time on the podcast, which is cool. Um, yeah, it is. For the, I suppose for the two or three people that don't know you, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, as we said, I'm the new and improved CISO for the Colorado Department of State. Right, right. I was an engineer for about six years before uh, Rich moved up to CPO position, and then I filled the CISO role. I've yeah, been doing that cool. for almost two years now. Excellent. This episode is going to be a lot of fun because there's a ton of community crowdsourced questions, and I'm excited to be able to ask you those. But before we do that, let's talk hobbies. What are your hobbies? Uh, personally, I like anything with skiing. Like I like snow skiing, water yeah. skiing. We've done a lot of that the past couple of years. Okay. And recently pick up mountain biking as well. Doing a lot of mountain biking with my son. So that's been a lot of fun. The, I love the water though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you go skiing, where do you go? So we, I'm from Grand Lake. Uh, so we, I grew up in Grand County. And as far as snow skiing, I spent a lot of time at Granby Ranch. Okay. Which is a pretty small little resort, but it's great because there's no lift lines and it's fantastic for teaching your kids how to ski. Yeah. I started my kids out never really skiing. And by the end of the season, I'm going down the hardest stuff there, which isn't super hard, but it's, you know, they got some black diamonds. It's been a lot of fun. I, I love being on the slopes. And then, yeah. of course, Winter Park. Okay. So, what about uh, water skiing? Where do you go for that? We used to drive up to Glendo and Guernsey, but I just actually moved up to um, the Longmont area and we, a house that is actually on water so we're gonna be able to go out right our back door and go water skiing whenever we want which is perfect when you're in COVID times because you know you can step out and go that's awesome i want an invite for that for sure definitely so craig how about yourself what are your hobbies i'm not quite the daredevil that rich is i i don't get into the mountain biking but i do enjoy skiing hiking Um, i also get into various construction projects I recently built a Murphy bed for new home office. So Murphy bed with a desk attached to it, uh, save some space working from home. Uh, A couple years ago, I built a full motion flight simulator and I've drawn up some plans for a steam engine for a go-kart, but haven't quite gotten the guts to build that one yet. Wow. uh, I'm a little bitter because I've never been invited over to get in the flight simulator, but you know, whatever. That's fair. But To rewind a little bit, the Murphy bed situation, that tells Mm me uh, you probably work too much if that's in your office. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and more just wanted to make a new space for our daughter to move her into another bedroom. So the guest room and office kind of got merged. So I needed a way to still have a home office and have a guest room. I got to add to this, though. This thing's awesome. He did a video of it. Yeah. It's like, when it folds up, his computer desk folds down and his computer and everything is already set up and on it. And wow. Then, yeah. So it's a Murphy bed slash computer desk built into one that converts. Yeah. You should post some pictures of that. That sounds pretty, pretty cool. Thanks. How did you guys get into the tech and security industry? Let's start with you, Rich. You know, I've always loved computers. Um, as a kid, uh, Atari 800, I remember writing my first program, of course, to try and play a video game, you know, copying out of a book and trying to do that downhill skier game. Now, moving on from that, I, I grew up building log homes, so I got really into AutoCAD and 3D Studio and trying to 
design the homes and put them into different places, which back then was really difficult, more difficult than it is now. And then uh, after after that period of time going to college, I actually got a degree in construction, got out and thought, well, I'm going to be outside working. And I wasn't, I was at a desk and I ended up doing the computer work all the time. So I ended up setting the VPNs up for remote job sites and kind of just moved into the computer industry and never looked back. Very cool. How about, how about yourself, Craig? Well, I uh, started out in the military as an aircraft mechanic and then retrained over to be a paralegal. And when I was working in the office job as a paralegal, I learned that I had a decent aptitude for computers and I was teaching a lot of the attorneys and other paralegals how to do things. Um, when I got out of the military in the civilian job, I started to shadow the IT guy for the firm, uh, the contractor that they had. And he taught me how to be the system admin. And I basically took over all of those roles of being the sysadmin and network admin for the firm. And that got my, my foot in the door and got me excited about the computer arena. And I learned that there are so many things that you can do in computers. And that's what really hooked me in in law and maintenance and all that stuff, you're kind of locked into a job with computers sky's the limit. Yeah. Um, so you yeah, had to point out in yeah. that time, since that period, he had also got his master's in cybersecurity and all his certifications. So he, he doesn't slack off. He's, he's always busy reading and learning. Yeah. I was going to say you had the option of becoming a lawyer or getting into tech. Uh, so you chose wisely. Yes. Don't have a hundred thousand dollars in, you know, law school debt. And yep. Very cool. So your, um, your current role then rich, you're the CTO at the uh, Colorado, um, secretary of state's office. Uh, tell me about like, what surprised you the most in your role and, uh, maybe what's your biggest challenge? Well, of course, everyone thinks CTO technology, you know, and, and I love technology, but it's, the, the, the biggest key to technology is the people and realizing that people are the most important asset you really have. Caring about those people and building a culture of trust has been the most important thing for me. And we've, I've got some great people I work with and continuing to get those teams working together on a regular basis, whether it be cybersecurity, you know, your, your Linux guys, your Windows people, your business managers, building that culture of trust so that you have people that are hearing about that technology. When they put a system live, they aren't like, oh man, we got to meet the security requirements. They want to do it because they know we're part of a team. And so really it's a culture of trust and really focusing on people and processes rather than the technology behind it. That makes sense. And then uh, Craig, as the CISO for, uh, for the Colorado Secretary of State's office, What's, I guess, same question to you. What's, you know, your biggest challenge and what surprised you the most about this role? Well, I'll start out with the surprises of there really wasn't too much of a surprise. Um, as I said, I was an engineer for six years. So I, I knew mostly what to expect moving into the job. Right. Um, but what surprised me is how much I miss doing the engineer stuff. I, I, I enjoy the role of the CISO. I enjoy... Um, more of the broad scope um, planning, but I do miss that hands-on keyboard digging into a system and actually doing the work rather than planning it out for others to do. Um, yeah. Challenges, um, as I moved up into this role, uh, we had another one of our engineers that got promoted as well and moved into another role. So we kind of started fresh with a whole new security staff 
Uh, and then COVID hit. So that's been a huge challenge of trying to train a new staff while doing it remotely and just getting everybody up to speed. Yeah, yeah, that's a and that's a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you guys about COVID and and the quarantine and the pandemic in general. So how how has that changed, you know, you guys personally first, but then secondarily like the office, the workforce. Tell me a little about that. Well, some of the biggest challenges for me is you know, I got kids at school. So, you know, dealing with that at home and trying to keep them on track. Uh, they do really well. Thankfully, I have slightly older kids. You know, they're they're all teenagers at this point, so it hasn't been as difficult as some people and their challenges of having to teach their kids as much. They come more for help rather than having to have that minute-by-minute minute attention. The uh, it, It's been a challenge. You know, we had a cha- I think everyone had a pretty challenging year. I mean, yeah. on top of the pandemic, um, unfortunately, my parents' house is burnt down in Grand County. Oh, no. Um, so the, the fires impacted us. And of course, as everyone has been impacted, not seeing people really get frustrating. Are they okay? Was it just the... Yeah, they're, they're all doing good. Um, you know, it, I will say it's challenging, you know, when you have parents that are the, in their 60s and 70s and they uh, lose their house and that they've been in for 30, 40, 50 years, there's definitely some challenges we have ahead, but they're pretty amazing people. Um, they, they've turned around and they're... they're uh, my stepdad's already got logs ordered and is getting ready to build his house. Okay. And he's in his seventies. So he's yeah. a pretty tough dude. And, uh, my, my real dad, um, for lack of a better term, uh, biological dad, he, uh, is well on his way to, to uh, getting a house built. So they're doing well. Are they building on the same land? Are they going to build the same structure again? Yeah, I was actually surprised. I think, you know, after you've been in an area like Grand Lake, you were up in the mountains, you kind of become pretty attached. Yeah. I figured they would might move down here, but there's no way. They're they're going right back to where they were. Yeah. And they're excited about it. Well, that's good to hear for sure. Um, Craig, what are your thoughts on, you know, how, is, how has this affected you personally and, and, um, and I suppose the office and your job? Personally, I've actually been very fortunate. I love not having to commute into work every day. Um, I've got a four-year-old daughter, so I get to spend a lot more time with her, um, not having to drive in and out. I get to see her every morning. I get a coffee with my wife in the morning. Um, it is a little bit more of a challenge when you have a, uh, you know, at the time, three-year-old that walks in in the middle of your meeting yeah. and uh, wants to interact with everybody on the screen, and, you know, trying to tell her no when she just can't understand why. She can't talk to the people on the screen. Right, Um, right. So yeah, it hasn't been that much of a challenge other than things being closed down and can't really take her to the museums or the parks as much. But for the most part, she's been a trooper and it's just life as usual. Do you do you guys think uh, the your office will ever go back to normal, or do you think like being remote is kind of the new normal? I think remote is going to be the new normal. we will definitely go back into the office um, to a certain extent. Uh, we do have a front counter for customers to come in, so we will definitely need to staff that. Um, there's other business functions that will function better being back in the office. Um, but my prediction is that we'll be at more of like three days on, two days off, or two days on, three days off type thing, and just have a rotating schedule when people are in the office. And overall, I think it's this, this is, you know, if you're going to look at the silver lining and all this, we were headed towards having more of a, the ability to work from anywhere before we left. And thankfully we were already well on our way to doing that. 
giving people laptops, moving to uh, platforms like Atlassian, Jira, Service Desk, um, using different tools that were online based to track our work and our DevOps processes. So really our teams have learned to work from anywhere. Okay. And overall, it's going to really benefit the office. So that there will be a, definitely be some people in the office, but it won't be the same ever again. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I'm pretty thankful that we were able to push forward in that direction. I think we're going to end up being more productive and more successful. And I personally don't like having a you know hour and a half in the car every day. Right. And more attractive to new employees too. We've struggled with that of trying to bring in. Um, newer developers and things like that and they want to work you know their own schedule they don't want that monday through friday nine to five yeah um, so now that we've finally gotten that culture accepted in the office um, it'll make us a little bit more appealing for bringing in new talent yeah that makes a lot of sense the um i i'm definitely never going to miss the long commutes although surprisingly i um or maybe unsurprisingly i listen to a lot less podcasts than i used to because i was my commutes are always my podcast time. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's shift gears and let's talk voting because I know that that is a uh, a topic of conversation. There was a recent election, and uh, my first question to you guys is: I, I want to talk about misinformation, disinformation from from where you guys sit. What actually is that, and how does it happen? Um, so mis and disinformation are very similar, uh, but they've got a slightly different flavor. So misinformation is mostly when somebody just doesn't really know better. Um, you hear something and you repeat it and it just might not be the truth. So you're misleading somebody in what you're saying. Okay. Disinformation is more of an intentional, I am providing you false information with a purpose to mislead you. Um, so we handle them both the same because they can both be equally detrimental, but one is a little more malicious intended than the other. Um, Rich and I learned that in back in the 2016 election that myths and disinformation were going to be a huge, huge part of securing the elections going forward. Yeah, uh, We had several um, incidents during that election that came out of social media, uh, people claiming that they had backed a county site and changed all the uh, voting records for uh, McAfee to say that McAfee was going to win the election. Uh, we had others on the dark web claiming that they were uh, had Colorado voter information that they were selling on the dark web. Uh, well, through investigation, we were able to find, well, Rich was able to find that uh, the dark web selling voter information was publicly available data. It wasn't actually, didn't have social security numbers, didn't have all this, all the PII to it. It was just basic information that you can get through public record search. Um, and that the other claim was just completely false. You know, they provided screenshots and all this stuff, but we were able to take it down. Um, the, lesson, the main lesson learned from that was that it took us about 24 hours to get that tweet removed um, after we proved that it was fraudulent. Leading into this election, there was a lot of groundwork laid with the social media agencies, Twitter, Facebook. We had direct contacts with those agencies so that we could more quickly combat mis- and disinformation. I mean, we went from 24 hours to take down a post to one to two hours. Wow. Now, okay, our yeah. focus for this was specifically things that 
were misleading about the election process itself. We weren't going to touch anything regarding you know specific candidates or anything like that of personal opinion on individual people. It was more like, hey, this voting center is closed. And I'm, one of the examples we had from this last year was, you know, at this drop box, there are armed personnel preventing people, people of color from dropping off their ballots. And so that was going all over on Nextdoor and Twitter. Um, so we were able to look at the camera footage or the county was able to look at the camera footage and show that, no, nobody's actually there. There was no armed personnel. So they could actually take down those posts. So having those relationships was great for combating that type of mis- and disinformation. So has there always been mis- and disinformation um, or is this kind of a new concept within uh, just the last, you know, several election cycles? I'm pretty sure misinformation and disinformation has been happening for the past, you know, well, since our country was formed and before. Well, but I mean, specific to, I guess, kind of <laughs> a, an, an election. Well, yeah, like, you know, election challenges. I, I think that's been common practice for a very long time. I okay. think it has become highlighted more because we have technology that allows us to communicate faster over a broader range of people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you guys have always had to kind of deal with that. That makes, that makes sense. So how can the public find out if something is like misinformation or disinformation? There's a, yeah, of course, first of all, you can go to our website, govotecolorado.gov. Okay. It'll link to the secretary of state website and right off of that page, you can link to several sources that, that cover misinformation and disinformation, what it is. And actually the secretary of state formed a whole campaign around that to stop misinformation and disinformation, which has been fantastic. On top of that, you got the cybersecurity infrastructure. Um, if you go to cifa.gov, C-I-F-A.gov, or slash rumor control, they have an excellent website where they're constantly updating and talking about the different rumors and stating what the actual truth is. Um, in addition to that, there's on that same site, there's the election disinformation toolkit published by CISA, which is a great resource. And then our CIO, Trevor Timmons, pointed out that there's an election infrastructure partnership, eipartnership.net. Um, this housed by Stanford Internet Observatory and several other, uh, the University of Washington, who put a lot of good information on, out there on disinformation and, and defeating it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's good. Good info for the community to, uh, to hear and learn about. So um, again, from your perspectives, what role do you think social media has really played and contributed to, uh, I guess, the misinformation and disinformation? So as far as social media goes, you know, I, I think that no matter what, the biggest thing is education. Yeah. Sure, social media has been involved. But whether you're on social media or you're going to a news site, um, no matter what, you got to consider your source. And you could be you know, making sure that you're fact checking, that they're referencing the material, that they're backing up their supposed facts. So it doesn't matter what news source you go to. I won't name them, but there's there's news sources that are mainstream on both sides yeah, and every side that you can possibly think of, whether it's a conspiracy theory or extremely right or extremely left. The key is paying attention, and, and I think it's really important 
that the American people and our kids learn to check their facts, check their sources and determine who they trust. And not only that, but go to more than one news source. You know, what, why are we limiting ourselves to, you know, people like to feed what they want to believe. Right. So instead of going to the news source that's your favorite every day, check out some other ones. Uh, one of the yeah. sites I really like is allsides.com. Because they try and do that. They try and show you the different news sources, whether they're very far left or very far right, and then kind of give you the the story on all sides. Yeah. And the name of the site. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. Allsides.com. And to piggyback a little bit on what Rick was saying of uh, the media campaign that was put out by our office, um, one of the things that they kept pushing is the go to the source, find your source of truth. So when you're talking elections, absolutely. The Secretary of State website should be your source of truth or your county website because they are the ones running the election. They are your source of truth. Um, so the best way to combat it is find the source. Where is the information coming from? Good advice. Let's talk technology in relation to uh, to voting. So do you think it will ever be possible to be um, paperless when it comes to voting? So I think that's an interesting question. I think lots of famous technology people have said that certain things would never happen and then they regretted it later. Or they said, you know, no one will ever need more RAM than, you know, 120 right. meg. And so I, I don't want to ever say it won't be possible. I will say that it's a ways out at a minimum and that there's some definitely obstacles ahead. Absolutely. Our saving grace for this last election, well, for all of our elections, is our risk limiting audit process, which we use to compare the paper ballot which is what's actually counted, that piece of paper, not what's marked into the computer when you go into the voting center. It's that paper ballot. And we can compare that to the electronic record from the scanner. So if there is any question, do the numbers match? You can go back and verify. Whenever, however many times you want, you can keep going back and verifying. If we get rid of that paper record, it makes it much, much more difficult to say, yeah, no, nobody changed those little bits, the ones and zeros. I can say definitively that it hasn't changed. It makes it much harder. So perhaps 200 years from now, the only functional use of paper will be for votes. Who knows? I like it. Let's, uh, I I do kind of want to explore a couple other um, wacky far out technology ideas. and, And if you guys have any thoughts on that, so blockchain or, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, do these have any roles in today's, um, I guess, operations of, and, and maybe not just voting, but Secretary of State's office in general um, or in the future? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? I'm going to let Rich handle blockchain because that is one of his favorite topics in the entire world. Perfect. So it is interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of good solutions out there for blockchain. There's a lot of things that we're going to see continue to be implemented with that. And I, I like the technology in a lot of ways, uh, as long as we don't, you know, melt down the power plants trying to support it. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> as far as voting right now, there's, there's some considerable obstacles it has ahead of it. First of all, first of all, we've noticed that a lot of times companies are using private blockchain and saying that that's the solution. I would tend to argue that once you make it private blockchain in this instance, you might as well have a private database, not a whole lot of difference. 
in addition to that, we, we have some major issues depending on access, acceptability. You know, you have the expense of a device that can defeat client-side malware attacks or BIOS attacks. And um, we have different companies that are saying that, you know, the software running on top of the BIOS is going to be secure. And, you know, to some degree, I get it. You know, we can detect maybe if there's a, a rooted device. But one of the fundamentals that we learned early on in the security world was if the lower label, lower level is compromised, the whole system is compromised. And I have a hard time getting away from that concept. I think it's an important one that we've seen hold true a lot of the time. There are also voter authentication, denial of service attacks, disruption attacks. There's a lot of issues that we'll have to address. And then the fundamental piece is the cost of the device. Who are the people that are really having a hard time getting to the polls or getting to be able to vote and getting affordable devices in, in, in those people's hands to be able to vote? There, there's a lot of challenges there. Definitely uh, makes sense. So, um, there, you know, a looking... great, great white paper I want to mention too. I forgot about this. Uh, a, a group called Common Cause, which you can email, wrote a white paper called Email and Internet Voting, the Overlooked Threat to Election Security. And it's not necessarily what our office is promoting or whatever, but it's it's an interesting read. Good to uh, good to hear that and, and know about that. Um, so I guess projecting into the future, 50 years from now, what are what's voting going to look like? Jason, I don't know what computers are going to look like yeah. 50 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just just your wildest, you know, dreams or or guesses. Um, secure voting that keeps confidentiality, privacy, yeah, and democracy alive. That's what I want to see. And okay. other than that, I can't. I don't know. But still, paper. No. <laughs> I'm not saying necessarily paper. I'm saying I don't know. As of today, we need that honorable, yeah. honorable trail. And, and and with anything, computers are a tool. Right. With any system, including our government, we have this great thing called checks and balances. You know, that's why we have branches of government and it works effectively. It was designed well. So maybe it won't be paper, but we want to make sure those checks and balances are in place because our democracy and our right to vote, this country is the best thing we've got going. It is still the best country in the world, in my opinion. And it, we got to fight for those rights. Yep. Yeah, and as far as what elections are going to look like in 50 years, I can't say. I mean, I've been doing this for about eight years, and it's changed drastically in the last eight years. Um, however, uh, mobile voting, online voting, things like that are going to continue to be pushed. I don't know if they'll actually be in place, but people are going to keep pushing them because they want that voter accessibility and the ease of use and just what people are used to. They've gotten used to online shopping and online registrations for everything. Our office at the Department of State, you can do almost everything online. Yeah, That's what people want. So that's what they keep pushing for. Uh, but as Rich said, we need that audit trail. Yeah. We're government. We cannot be on the bleeding edge of things. We cannot do the, this is the cool, fancy, most fun way to do it. We've got to focus on what's the most secure, most transparent and most auditable way to do it. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. Let's get into the crowdsourced questions from the Colorado Equal Security community. And um, there's some good ones out there. What, what are the emerging threats you guys see in the future? Um, as far as elections are concerned, I can see the same thing we've seen in 16 and 2020. It's just going to continue to ramp up with um, 
foreign countries getting involved in social media, trying to fan the flames. Uh, we saw a lot of social media posts that might have been started by an American, but then it gets picked up by these bots that are being sponsored by other countries and spread like wildfire through these. And some of them are getting started by other countries. And it's it's an easy way for them to maintain or to spread false information. So here's another question. What technologies have, have allowed um, Colorado to be at the forefront of election security? So, so primarily when we look at that, it, we implemented a lot of stuff. We were the first state to implement multi-factor authentication on, on our voter registration database, which was huge back in the 2016 election. We were the first state to Im- implement risk-limiting audits so that we can show that the machines were not hacked. We can show statistically and see that the paper trail against what the machine said is accurate. That's incredible. Um, along with that, of course, with Debbie Blight in the state of Colorado, we've really focused on the critical controls and hardening systems and continual penetration testing, continual audits to make sure we're on top of them all. Another thing specifically with the election or with the voting equipment is we make sure that all the voting systems are air-gapped. So there is no internet access. It is just impossible to secure a system if it has internet access. Um, and we have to have some crossover to be able to upload re- upload the results and things like that. Um, so we've provided each one of the counties with an encrypted secured USB drive um, that has firmware protections so that they can use that for the transfer between internet connected and air gap systems to help make sure that those systems stay air gapped. So every time that USB plugs into an internet connected machine, it gets completely reconfigured and blown away before it touches another voting system. So those are some of our major, our big controls. And then I can't stress enough what Rich said of the risk limiting audit, just being able to validate there's always going to be vulnerabilities. There's always going to be ways to mess with the system. The ability to validate the results at the end is the key thing to prove that they're accurate. Right. That makes sense. So here's another crowdsource question. Um, and, and I don't think this one is necessarily just election, uh, election stuff. I think it's um, just in general, what would you like to see when it comes to security? So in general, I think it's still the fundamentals. I mean, multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, password vaults, patching. And when I look at the other things outside of elections, when we're looking at small business and other people like that, it's those same fundamentals. Uh, Things that we've talked about with small businesses, identity theft monitoring or even individuals and credit monitoring, audits and alerts on your bank accounts, setting up multi-factor authentication on your bank accounts, Uh, or phishing protection, uh, one of the things that Craig's been working hard on is browser isolation. Yeah, and I'll throw out there also sharing of information. Okay. Um, we've had several other events that, over the last few years um, with vendors, with whatever. I mean, Solar Winds is on top of everybody's mind. And, you know, FireEye has been phenomenal with sharing the information. We've had other, not quite to this level, but similar incidents with other vendors. And it's, you know, they've got to protect their investment. So it's very close, very closed off, not very good information sharing. 
So that's what I would really love to see with security is more information sharing, um, getting stuff down from the ISACs, from various other threat intel feeds is great. But by the time we get it, it's you know two, three months after whatever happened. Right. So we need a better collaboration, sharing, get out there in front of things. When you notice something is bad, let the community know so we can protect ourselves. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because another of the crowdsource questions was, how are you coordinating with local businesses around threat intel and, and sharing? So it sounds like that's, you know, that's an area that can be improved, um, right? And But what is happening today? Well, as far as sharing within government, it's been much easier. Um, we, we've been able to work with different jurisdictions to start the Colorado Threat Information Sharing Group that a number of the people on the Colorado Security Group are members of, but we have limited that to government. There's definitely legal and other challenges when it comes to sharing threat information with businesses um, from our perspective. Okay. So yeah. we want to do it and we're wanting to approach that, but we aren't there yet. Yeah, makes sense. Here's another question. What are the biggest steps businesses can take to protect themselves and their customers' data? Um, multi-factor authentication. Uh, we harp on that all the time. Of It's a great, um, great benefit because passwords just, you can't make them long enough and people don't remember them when they are long enough. Um, so having that multi-factor authentication, um, penetration testing, making sure stuff is secure. Uh, we miss stuff all the time. So having that second set of eyes to come back and look at it, matching. Right. Every security training course that I've ever been through, that is the number one thing that is always touted, patching, 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 because every breach that you hear, oh yeah, they got in through this you know, three-year-old vulnerability. I know it doesn't always work, but patch as much as you can. And if you can't patch it, mitigate it. Who do you guys look up to in the industry and have you had any mentors? Yeah, I don't know if I can really list off people that I look up to because I know I'll let leave somebody off the list. Yeah. Um, it's always hard. Mentors. Um, Rich, uh, he's been a, a huge mentor for me. He's actually the one that got me into cybersecurity. As I said, I started out as a, an admin at a firm you know, working as a network admin. So he kind of pulled me into the security side and showed me how exciting that was. Um, Debbie Blythe, the state CISO, uh, she has been an amazing partner, great resource, very smart lady. Um, our CIO at the Department of State, Trevor Timmons, um, he's involved in so many different things at the state and the federal level. Um, amazingly sharp guy, um, very quick and just getting a lot of positive movement on various projects to help us secure not only our office, but the state and the country. Awesome. How about yourself, Rich? Uh, from my perspective, again, I got to emphasize that this community, Colorado Equals Security, I'm so thankful this was started. I'm really thankful to Rob and, and team, amazing stuff that you guys have done. The, I don't know. The, uh, everyone here is my friend, you know, and everyone has each other's back and it's really a strong community. So there's a number of people. Again, I, I got to emphasize that Debbie and Trevor, Debbie Blythe is an amazing leader, um, leads by example. And, and Trevor, man, he dwarfs our knowledge when it comes to election security. You got to have him on here someday because he can read faster than anyone I've ever met. Oh yeah. And retains information like you wouldn't believe. And he's, he's good with it. 
And then you know, this person that really encouraged me to, to move down the security track was Mike Weber. With I believe he's with Fire now. He's a pretty amazing guy. Yeah, great stuff. I'm glad that you both kept mentioning Debbie Blythe. So I think we should end on uh, this particular crowdsourced question, which comes courtesy of Douglas Brush. And the question is, if you challenged Debbie Blythe to a dance-off, what song would you use? I'm going to leave that up to Craig. Yeah. I can't dance. Yeah, that's... So um, she's just going to win by default? You're not even going to compete or challenge her to I'm this sure dance-off? Sure she'd spank us in whatever we chose, but uh, I've got a four-year-old daughter, so okay. I'll throw down with anything from the Frozen soundtrack. Ooh. I'm sure I can go toe-to-toe. There we go. There we go. So if she also, if Debbie had to dance to that same soundtrack, who would win? I don't know. I'd probably have to give the props to Debbie. Okay. All right. I, I could put up a good fight with that one, but uh, good sure stuff. she'd take it. Good stuff. I'm glad we could end on kind of a fun note. Um, how can people uh, find or follow you on social media or do you guys stay off of it because of, um, you know, what it is? I, I'm still involved in social media. I, I am under the impression that if you're not on it, someone else will create an account for you. So I, yeah. I, I would rather have an involvement on there and be aware of what's on there. Plus knowing the platform. So I'm cyber summit on Twitter. I do not tweet a lot. So don't expect you know, like daily updates. And then of course you can find me on LinkedIn and the Colorado equal security Slack channel. Great. How about yourself, Craig? I'm also on the Colorado Equal Security Slack channel and LinkedIn. Um, I do tend to shy away from social media. Um, we do have a Twitter and uh, Facebook page for the office. So I tend to let uh, them handle most of our tweets and posts. Uh, if anybody needs to reach out to me, they can connect via those, the uh, LinkedIn or the Slack channel. Very good. Very good. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for joining me today. And, um, you know, I hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thank Thanks, you. Jason. That concludes my interview with Rich and Craig. Be sure to follow and support Colorado Equal Security on Patreon. This is Jason Jake saying be safe out there. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado Equal Security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.